In this episode of 2000 Books, Salim Ismail dissects exponential businesses like Airbnb and Uber to understand how they got to become such dominant forces and what we can do if we want to create an exponential startup that is 10x faster, better, or cheaper than the current competition. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, self-help, and much more. And I'm your host, Manny Vile. Today, we have Salim Ismail. Salim has started and or operated seven startups, and his last company was sold to Google. Salim ran Yahoo's in-house incubator and currently serves as the executive director at Singularity University. Today, we're talking about his outstanding book, Exponential Organizations, why new organizations are 10 times better, faster, and cheaper than yours, and what to do about it. Salim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell, tell, tell us about your story. Tell us about what led you to this book and, uh, and more about your story, your personal journey. Uh, sure. So I'm the uh, founding executive director for Singularity University, uh, which is based at NASA. Uh, we bring together leading experts in the world in very, very fast-moving technologies like AI, robotics, 3D printing, synthetic biology, neuroscience, et cetera, et cetera. And we look a lot into the future, and uh, we spend about 80% of our curriculum teaching the future. And we teach a lot of business executives, government leaders as to how to think about the world uh, our mission statement is how do you harness that pace of change and that acceleration that's inherent in those technologies to solve the biggest problems in the world? Uh, and we challenge our students to come up with an idea harnessing that pace of change that would impact a billion people within 10 years. So I've been doing that for seven years now. Uh, before that, I was the head of innovation at uh, Yahoo, uh, ran their incubator called Brickhouse. Um, and I found that when you try and do disruptive innovation in a big company, that the immune system of the organization will come and attack you, right? I mean, all of our org structures are actually built to withstand change and withstand risk. And now we're seeing that's the harder bit. Um, and then before that, I was a tech entrepreneur for a few years. But before that, I spent 10 years in Europe restructuring large uh, European companies, um, mostly uh, French ones, which was why I'm bold, I think. Um, and I'm Canadian and I grew up um, originally from India. So it's kind of fairly uh, broad-based geographic uh, kind of experience, plus a lot of business experience, both at the big company and startup level. And it started becoming clear to me about three, four years ago that something fundamental has changed in how we're building businesses. And that's essentially what the book is about. Got it. So um, you said something very uh, interesting, which is the immune system of the business kind of attacks you. Oh, maybe we'll get into it later. But uh, a very, very interesting way of looking at it, it seems like uh, that's happening. Or you see that happen around the big corporations, the Fortune 500s. All of the, any big company, and frankly, any company, because uh, you have to think of an or a company or an organization as a biological entity, right? And so it has sales and marketing, it's going to feed, and it's got internal uh, costs and internal organs. And all organisms have an immune system to kind of fight off uh, attackers, change, et cetera, et cetera. And that analogy I found applies best. And, and whenever I meet people that have been involved in corporate innovation, they can see the scars in their backs from having uh, attempted this. And so in an era where the world is changing faster and faster, that structure may be under dire threat given the way that the world is moving. And that's part of what I wanted to highlight in the book. Yeah. 
So let's talk about the book. Give us a brief 10,000 feet overview of the book, what to expect from it. Okay. So there's kind of two or three parts to the book. The first is the uh, a little kind of a chapter or so summary of what we teach at Singularity, which is essentially the idea that we're, the world is becoming information enabled and thus moving very, very quickly. Right. So the first thing that's happening is we're all of our, our memories aren't in our heads anymore. They're on our smartphones. All our relationships are now digital via social networks as opposed to analog. Right. And what we found and what Ray Kurzweil has shown is that when you digitize a domain and information enable it, uh, its price performance starts doubling uh, very, very steadily. And you have that hockey stick growth path uh, that we all startups are kind of looking out for. And so computation has been on this path now for 60 years via Moore's law, doubling every 18 months. We're now seeing that doubling pattern across every single technology that we can see. Neuroscience, our ability to image the brain, the resolution at which we can image the brain is doubling every year. Uh, in biotech, our ability and uh, the price performance of gene sequencing is doubling every four months today. This may be the fastest moving technology uh, we're ever see we're seeing. Uh, drones. Uh, a drone can carry a kind of a four kilo package about 10 kilometers today. Uh, but the underlying technologies are moving so fast that those are doubling every nine months. Right. And so we have these incredible acceleration across a whole slew of technologies in a way that we've never seen it. So that's the high order bit. And that's literally happened over the last 10 years or so as we've information enabled all of these other technologies. When you have that pace of change, you ha it becomes very, very disruptive. And I'll use the analogy of photography. Uh, some of your listeners are old enough to actually remember film photography, uh, but you're operating off a material substrate. Um, you can only carry so much film around. It costs a dollar a photograph or so. And most importantly, you're operating from a scarcity model, right? You, you kind of take courses in photography to optimize every shot. When you move to digital photography and you information enable the domain and you now have an information-based uh, substrate, two or three really big things happen. The first is the marginal cost of taking another photograph goes to zero. Right now you can take a thousand more photographs, the cost is the same. As a result, the domain explodes and we get a billion photographs uploaded per day uh, instead of a billion over a year. Uh, and that's happening today. And the third is which is very subtle but very important is you shift the problem space from a scarcity problem space where I'm trying to optimize every shot and all my focus is on how to optimize to an abundance problem space. Uh, in photography, for example, we all have eight copies of our photographs on 10 different devices, and we simply can't find the good stuff, right? And so that kind of three-way effect of abundance in the domain exploding, marginal cost going to zero, and shifting of the problem space, we are seeing that happen now across all of these technologies, drones, Bitcoin, synthetic biology, neuroscience, et cetera, et cetera. It means that anybody can pick up these technologies because the costs are so low and go attack legacy environments. And so we're seeing an utter explosion of innovation as people start experimenting and playing with this stuff at home. Uh, uh, Chris Anderson has created a 50,000-person drones enthusiast community uh, submitting ideas and designs for drones. And so they, they're, the development and pace of drones is incredibly fast today. So if you add those two things up, uh, we're seeing a new breed of businesses that is tapping into that that we've never seen before. And I call these exponential organizations and the base metric I found is these new organizations are doing a minimum 10x performance improvement compared to their peers in the same space. Uh, so, for example, if you're Procter & Gamble or Johnson & Johnson or in the CPG business, consumer packaged goods, it takes you about 300 days to go from a new idea to product on a Walmart shelf okay, uh, for a good product. If you are quirky, 
uh, you take do that same process, new idea to product on a Walmart shelf in 29 days, right? Unheard of. And that's an old industry. That's not some newfangled social gaming hoo-ha thing, right? Same thing with local motors. If you're a car company, it costs about $3 billion to develop a new car model from scratch. Local Motors leverages a community of mechanics and enthusiasts, and they build an entirely new car model from scratch for $3 million. That's a thousand times performance increase. So this is literally a five to six-year-old phenomenon. Maybe the birth point of this was Amazon Web Services, where we suddenly turned computation from a product and having to build server farms into a service, and everything became a variable cost. And so what I looked at was, okay, you've got this new breed of organizations. We've now identified about 100 of these. Um, how are they doing it? What are the characteristics and techniques and attributes that they have to leverage it? And I identified uh, kind of uh, three components. The first was that they all had what I call a massive transformative purpose um, and, or an MTP, uh, Google, Organize the World's Information. Uh, quirky is make invention accessible, right? Singularities is uh, uh, impact a billion people positively. And it creates like a gravity well in a community forms and people get very excited about the idea. And it provides focus during fast growth and makes it easier to get talent and so on. The second component is five external attributes that these companies are using to leverage outside themselves. So the way we've been building business up to now is a scarcity model. You get an asset or a workforce, you put a legal boundary around it, and you sell access to scarcity, right? Whether it's a great design team or a hotel on a beach or a great chef or whatever. Um, what these new businesses, exponential organizations are doing, they're keeping a very small footprint on the inside, but tapping into assets and leveraging um, capabilities that they don't own. Uh, Waze taps into the user's GPS. Uber is using other people's cars. Uh, Airbnb is tapping into other people's bedrooms, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And by not owning the asset, you, you reduce your, your fixed costs and your management costs quite considerably and give you a lot of flexibility. And you can scale outside the organization. Um, Note that for Uber, the mission-critical function of matching driver to passenger does not happen inside the org structure, right? It happens out in the wild, and therefore it can scale, okay? So they are using these five externalities, uh, and they map to the attributes scale. Um, uh, the first is staff on demand. The C is community and crowd. The A is algorithms. The L is leveraging assets. And the E is engagement, uh, gamification techniques, et cetera, et cetera. Then I found five internal mechanisms as a kind of a new way of a control framework that these companies are using to manage themselves in a different way. Um, so Quirky has a million inventors submitting ideas to it. It's had to develop kind of unique IP in how do you manage, filter, rank, prioritize all the ideas being submitted. And the in the same way that the App Store uh, has to filter on by algorithms and teams what ideas come into the App Store. Right. And so the five internal attributes map to an acronym called ideas. So interface processes is the I. The D is dashboards, the use of OKRs and real live metrics from lean startup. Uh, the E is experimentation, very much uh, thinking about the lean startup philosophy. The A is autonomy, decentralized authority structures. Um, that allow you to operate very flexibly. And the S is social technologies, the use of, you know, Yammer, uh, Slack, et cetera, et cetera, to provide real-time information inside the organization. So those are the five internal mechanisms. What we found is if you implement four out of the 10 uh, between scale and ideas, you get the 10x performance improvement. So that's the rough guideline that we found. Uh, some uh, GitHub, for example, deploys about 10 out of the 11. Uh, 10, uh, oh, 9 out of the 10, sorry, 
um, uh, Google Ventures up, uses all of them, uh, heavily uses algorithm, community, crowd, et cetera, et cetera. So four out of 10 is the minimum to achieve the 10x improvement. And so that's the first half of the book is what are these characteristics? Uh, how do you, you know, case studies, how do you implement them? What do we mean by them, et cetera? And at the end of the first half of the book, I have a diagnostic survey, uh, which is on the website, exponentialorgs.com slash survey, where you can actually score your own org structure and see how scalable it is, right? And so uh, about three weeks ago, on on uh, Stephen Levy, the journalist on Medium, announced, uh, he worked with me, and we announced the top 100 most exponential organizations that we've ever found. Um, and it, the article is called Secrets of Unicorns. And so that's a list of 100 of the most scalable companies we found. The second half of the book is the more interesting part is how do you do it, right? Uh, I wanted to kind of make a practical how-to guide. And so there's a piece on how do you start an organization with these uh, techniques in mind, um, uh, which is relevant to your audience particularly. And then what do you do if you're an existing business? How do you react to this new reality? And I'll kind of give you the core economic thesis that has emerged from studying this, uh, these companies and these, this phenomena is that, you know, when you're building a business, you worry about managing cost of supply and cost of demand, right? And you try and optimize around both sides of that equation. Uh, what the internet did 10, 15 years ago, it allowed us to drop the cost of demand exponentially, right? Online marketing, referral marketing. And if you get the kind of holy grail of a viral loop, your acquisition costs go totally to zero, kind of a magical place to be. That was the first time in the history of the business, of history of business that we could actually build uh, and have no acquisition costs. Now, what we found is these new exponential organizations, they figured out how to drop your cost of supply exponentially. So uh, Airbnb, the marginal cost of adding a hotel room is very low, whereas if you're Hyatt, you have to build a whole new hotel. Okay? So they're tapping into an abundance outside them of extra bedrooms that they can tap into leveraging technology. Uh, if you're Uber, you're tapping into other people's cars, right? And so by leveraging these externalities, you have low cost of supply. And so when you have low cost of supply and low cost of demand, your business explodes. And that's why we're seeing these incredible market caps. Got it. Um so there's so much good stuff here, and I'm going to start from the three components, and we're going to work our way down. When we talk about the five externalities, you know, having the staff on demand and the community in the crowd, algorithms, leverage assets, engagement, um, from your studying, from your looking at the top 100 exponential organizations, what are the three that have stood out the most when it comes to, like, when you say the five externalities and the five internal control mechanisms, what are the three most important ones? We're seeing actually companies use all of them in some ways. But for example, uh, I think community and crowd is a key one today. So TED uses its community to create TEDx events, right? And in five years, he's grown a, uh, created a global media brand. Uh, nobody has ever created a global media brand so fast, and his cost of doing so was almost free or Chris Anderson's DIY drones community, or the GitHub community. So uh, crowd and community is a key one because it allows you to get work done outside the core org structure. Um, the staff on demand leveraged assets is fairly obvious if you can do it, depending on the business that you're in. Uh, but maybe the, the really key one is probably algorithms. Um, Google uses algorithms, obviously, to scale and the cost of uh, it, it uh, kind of serving up one search instantiation is almost zero, but they get a few pennies of revenue per search. And that becomes really interesting when that's done a billion times a month, right? Um, uh, but uh, UPS uses algorithms. All the unicorns today that, they, that they're called, uh, Uber, Airbnb, uh, GitHub, et cetera, are using heavy 
data analytics to analyze the flows of information to optimize around them and learn from what's going on. So algorithms turns out to be a really key one, especially as we turn more and more of the world into information. So I would kind of lump assets on demand and staff on demand as tapping into externalities. I'd think about algorithms as a very critical uh, component that if you're not leveraging those heavily, you will not scale at that pace. And then uh, crowd and community to get work done elsewhere. Uh, engagement is really about how do you use gamification techniques to keep your community excited, uh, you know, the Foursquare mayor type of stuff. And then incentive prizes, like on Kaggle or the Netflix prize, etc. cetera, uh, engagement uh, incentive prizes where Peter is an expert uh, are really good at turning crowd into community and kind of increase your community base. So it varies per company and per domain. But typically, I would focus on crowd and community algorithms and then engagement as key mechanisms. Got it. And uh, and I know I'm putting you in a difficult stop, a spot here because you have outlined 10 of them. So it doesn't make any sense to say, hey, just tell us three. But, you know, I want to see from your research. Yeah, that was three on the external side. Let me mention a couple on the internal side. A couple on the internal, which is ideas. One is interfaces. If you have a ton of stuff happening on the outside, you better work on the how do you interface with your million member community in a really elegant way. Otherwise, you're going to be in big trouble. You can't deal with that. That uh, It'll overwhelm you. And the other one that I'm finding particularly fascinating is autonomy. The use of, you know, holacracy is one example. Uh, Zappos is going down this path of turning everybody into self-determining teams. Um, it's kind of amazing to see that phenomena take hold of maybe one of the more interesting examples is Valve Software out of Seattle, 400-person um, company. Uh, no CEO, no reporting lines, no job descriptions, no management meetings, no middle management layers. They literally operate like a beehive. Uh, and and fascinating to see. They get more revenue per employee than Microsoft doing this. Wow. And you could argue in some ways like an Uber community. I mean, once you have the community built, if you abstract the management part of the equation away, it is an autonomous uh, community. Nobody is about another. We're just... Exactly. And, and and then if you look at Chris Anderson, all he's doing in that once he's built a community, he's just listening to them. And they're saying, hey, we want a DIY kit for building our own drones. So that, that becomes a company. And boom, you've got a ready market to uh, and a ready customer base. Exactly. Um, now, like we're talking about the different externalities and the internal control mechanisms, but let's say you are a startup, you are in the early phase, you're innovating, and you're still trying to figure out your business model. You're still trying to get the product market fit. What you're saying is this is actually built into the model, not like something you iterate after, because it's hard. I mean, maybe you can, but maybe it's a better way to look at it if you are already thinking about how to make it such that it is so scalable, how to how to create it such that the business model itself is so innovative rather than try to go after it afterwards. Yeah, it's actually critical to start an organization with the with this thinking in mind. It's very hard to retrofit into existing organizations, which is why we think big companies as a category are in deep trouble. Okay? Because they're all operating on a scarcity model. And they, they, uh, so the two key ways of thinking about how to build one of these is one, make sure your product or service is heavily information enabled. That's one, because that gives you scalability and you can apply algorithms and so on, uh, leverage the internet, et cetera, et cetera. Second, uh, make sure you have very low marginal cost of supply. Uh, and that gives you a small footprint to go after and go attack other businesses. And, you know, when we first kind of, when I first talking, started talking about this four or five years ago, people thought, 
I was a bit nuts, and this was a, I was kind of trying to create a movement that didn't exist. But now you look at the success of Uber, Airbnb, and all these other companies and how fast they're scaling. Airbnb, by the end of this year, will be the biggest hotel chain in the world, okay? And they don't own any hotels, okay? How awesome a business is that to be in? It is absolutely fascinating. Right? And they have no marginal cost. To, to, to add their, their cost of adding rooms to their inventory is incredibly low. And Uber might have the largest fleet of cars. I don't know. Maybe it is true. Maybe not. Well, let me give you two stats about Uber that I found fascinating. Because I have a lot of VC friends that did not invest in Uber because they, they looked at the taxi revenue in major cities and they worked out that if you add that all up, it's just not that much money, right? And so they just went, ah, this is can't be. For example, the taxi industry in San Francisco is about $140 million a year, right? So if you take 10% of that as a commission fee, uh, your annual revenues are about 14, 15 million, not that great of a business if you're trying to scale globally. And that's assuming you're taking over 100% of the business. That's, yeah. So so all my VC friends kind of went, ah, that's not going to work, okay? Except, so with the taxi revenue market, uh, for the taxi revenue in San Francisco is 140 million a year, Uber is actually on track to make a half a billion a year this year in San Francisco. So not only have they taken 80% of the existing market, but they're actually tripled the marketplace because that many more people, you know, teenagers going out on dates or whatever, are using Uber that then would otherwise use taxis. And and so that, that's what all my VC friends kind of missed. And that really is interesting, Right. Um, I'll give you one other statistic. Uh, the cost of business ground transportation in the U.S. is now about 48% Uber. What? Business wow. ground travel expenses across the entire U.S. are now about 48% Uber. That's a huge statistic. Okay. So now, if you're an existing business, um, the speed at which you get attacked. Now, the taxi industry is a legacy business. Same with the hotel business, Right. So you have these legacy industries that think, oh, we're kind of good. We, we're not going to get impacted. We're not some social media, gaming, email, internet play. And our our products are real. But you look at Quirky in the CPG space and operating 10x faster, better, cheaper, smaller. And every single business that we can look at is getting fundamentally disrupted today. Take the energy business, right? About as stodgy and old as you can imagine. Solar energy is doubling every 22 months. Um, next year, solar will be cheaper than the U.S. grid, the energy coming off the U.S. grid. And at that pace, we will have 100% of world energy supply deliverable by solar in less than 20 years. Right? And so uh, there, we literally can't find a business that is not not being disrupted. Although I may have found one. Um, a guy came up to me at a conference that I may have a business that is not impacted by your stuff. And I said, oh, what do you do? And he said, I build and maintain elevator shafts. <laughs> and I kind of went, huh. Uh, you know, I got to admit, I don't know how uh, that might be disrupted, uh, except, you know, if we stop going into office buildings or something like that. But that's a reasonably protected environment. It occurred to me that, that may be one business where you're roughly uh, safe from social media and stuff like that. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, very mechanically oriented business. Um, so it's a great case study after, right? But when you are... Yeah. So let me talk about how you do this. What do you do if you're, if you're listening to the show, right? So the thing to do is pick an MTP, pick a problem space that you are really excited about, like in the ways guys were passionate about uh, solving traffic, okay? Uh, Uber and Airbnb were passionate about their particular domains. You pick a problem space that you're totally excited about because you need that passion to overcome all of the humps and insanity that goes on with building a startup, which I'm sure you, all your readers know is not a rational act. You have reason to do it. Okay. 
So uh, you, you do it because you love the problem space and you want to go after it. The second thing you do is you pick, uh, you start creating, you pick your team of three or four uh, similarly crazy people. You then find a community or create a community uh, of enthusiasts. If you're doing medical devices, then there's a whole DL, quantified self community that you can join and learn from and tap into the talent there, right? Same with Bitcoin. There's a whole community there, for example. Um, so you find a community, then you come up with an idea. So coming up with the idea for us is like step four or five. It's not the early on step, okay? Because the idea then informs the problem space. Otherwise, you often have a technology looking for a problem, okay? So then you come and the idea should be at least 10x better than the status quo because you've got to overcome a lot of hassles along the way. Your solution has to be much better. And then you get a minimum viable product out there, and then you iterate on that, and then you implement the scale and ideas models. And that's roughly the process that we show. But the two key things to look for are, is your product or service information enabled? And to deliver a 10x better performance than the status quo, it usually has to be. And the second is make sure you have, you're building your organization or your company with zero marginal cost of supply, because then you'll get scale. If you can kind of apply those two heuristics, uh, and let me give you a crazy example. Um, are, you, are you familiar with Soylent? Yes, yes. Yeah, so Rob Reinhardt, right, out of New York, um, uh, gets pissed off that he has to go out to stop coding to go eat, um, you know, typical developer type, and and uh, cooks up this stuff called Soylent, which is a 100% perfect mix of uh, carbs, fats, nutrients, vitamins, minerals, uh, and open sources it, right? And this is what I find incredibly exciting about entrepreneurs today is that if you were – 50 years old or over, you would go and patent it and then license your invention or its, or formula to, to food companies, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas this kid goes, I want to solve famine around the world. It would be amazing to be able to drop boxes of, of soil in, into Nepal right now, right? And so he opens it. There are already 1,500 variations of his formula out there. And so very interesting that you can do that and still build a very viable business and kind of do good things in the world. And he has low marginal cost of supply as a result. Now, if you're Kraft Foods, you will likely not see that coming. And you will discount it even if you see you it. You will discount it. Yeah, exactly, right? Same with the car companies, all discounted Tesla and the Google car uh, etc. And maybe the company that does this best as a big company is is Apple. Okay, Apple is doing something very unique that nobody else has really noticed. Uh, uh, what Apple's doing, unlike any other company in the world, is they take a small team, very disruptive, take them to the edge of the organization, keep them totally stealth, and they say, "Go attack a different industry." So they started with music, and then phones, and then tablets, and now you know watches healthcare, cars, uh, there's no upper limit to their market cap. They can just keep knocking over industries. So they have a nice design capability and a great technology supply chain, but their real innovation is the organizational one. And we think companies will be forced to do this, uh, to react in a big company. But as a startup, given the big companies are not moving quickly and can't move quickly and have legacy high marginal costs, you can attack almost any industry today. So as long as we keep the two metrics in our mind while we're thinking and while we're going through our processes, the two metrics being heavily information dependence or heavy availability of information and yeah. very low or zero marginal cost to supply, we're looking at some possibility of disruption in the industry in the sense that we're looking at 10x and we're not looking at just a marginal improvement. Yeah. 
Because then if you're looking for incremental innovation and delivering incremental innovation to a marketplace, a big company will kill you. And so it has to be 10x. You look at, I'll give you a good legacy example of Salesforce, right? They looked at the enormous cost of implementing SAP and so on and just said, the hell with this. We'll just go web-based. And so their deployment cost is pretty much zero. That's right. Um, Now you have uh, the Khan Academy. Is that like one of the only education-related exponential organizations you have there? No, there's several. I'm looking at what um, Max Ventilla is doing with Alt Schools. He was one of the principals on the Google Plus project and just got $100 million in funding for this Alt Schools idea. He's creating literally a software platform where you can essentially, anybody can go create a school. Uh, and so he's creating, he's building again something where the costs of starting a school are almost zero. That's right. Now, actually, I'll take that back because you have quite a lot. You have Coursera and Wikimedia and quite a few others. Yeah. Look yeah. at look at Duolingo, right? Crowdsourced uh, language learning. Uh, that's again leveraging the crowd. They have no cost. They don't have to develop their own courses and so on. Uh, the Khan Academy broke the mold, but they're still recording their own clips. That's right, right? To maintain consistency, it'd be interesting to say we want a six-minute clip on teaching fractions to you know eight-year-olds and let everybody submit them, and I'll pick I'll pick the best one. Is that happening already? Yeah, that is. There's a bunch of those people doing that. Tongle is doing this in the advertising space. Um, they do contests for the best Doritos commercial. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've heard uh, of them. And that goes into the Super Bowl, right? And the cost creating an ad just went from a million dollars to $100,000 of prize money. Yep. There's a lot of good stuff. I highly recommend for the listeners out there to go check out top100.exponentialorgs.com. It's going to be educational. It's going to be really eye-opening to see what is out there and some of the established companies who are there in that mix. For example, Hair. I mean, nobody would think they were, they sounded like an exponential, but sounds like they are. And I'm, I'm going to ask you about that. But really interesting mix of companies and really good to brainstorm. So thanks for putting that together. No problem. So great information, uh, Salim. And uh, want to thank you very much for this interview. Any parting piece of guidance? Any last thoughts? I think this is the best time in the history of the world to be an entrepreneur because we're hitting an inflection point in how businesses are done that's very disruptive based on this information paradigm that's exploding. And when you have a disruptive environment, you have massive opportunity. And so you look at what Elon is doing, right? No experience in the car space, the energy space, the the um, uh, the rocket space. And off he goes. He's created market leaders in each of those areas. So pick an area that you're passionate about. Find some technologies that would create a 10x difference and go for it. Excellent. Thank you very much, Salim. Of course, all the links from the show today will be on the show notes page. There you can also download the summary and action guide of the book. So just head on over to 2000books.com and you will find everything right there.